The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We'll get going in, into the, today. Uh, I just want to welcome you all here, and I have um, a list of names of people I'd really like to thank, and particularly Wing Commander Brett Marshall, who's sitting here. Um, he's been brilliant in uh, helping set this up and uh, uh, just making this happen. And it's fantastic to be back here at Wigram to do another forum meet. Uh, we did one in 2016. Um, and we had about 20 people come to that one and there's 50 something on the list here for today so um, it just shows that it's gained in popularity in the South Island just as it has in the North Island which is great. Uh, I'd also like to um, thank Russell Brody, who's really been the catalyst uh, for making all this happen. Um, it's because of Russell that uh, he asked me if I knew who flew his tiger moth during the war and could I look through uh, logbooks that I've copied over the years? And the only person that I've found so far was Brian Cox, who flew NZ 1443 um, back in 1943, um, almost 75 years ago, while he was training as a pilot. Uh, so that's where this whole thing started. And we, um, we were looking at... Uh, trying to work out how to get Brian and the Tiger Moth back together and as you all know we ran the Give a Little uh, fundraiser to try and get Brian down here um, or down to Rangitata Island where the um, Tiger Moth lives and uh, within, within the first evening of that uh, fundraiser we'd raised more than what I had actually uh, expected to, to try and raise and it kept on going for another couple of weeks and kept on going up. Uh, and that, um, that meant that uh, with the extra money, it meant that I could come down as well. And I, that wasn't my idea, that was uh, Russell's, because I was going to make sure that it went towards the flight, and uh, he insisted that I come down with the extra money. And I said, well, if I'm coming down, we should do something like the forum meet, which we'd done two years ago. And so this is how this has all come about, and uh, it's kind of serendipity, really. But uh, uh, it's it's fantastic that the way it's worked out, we've got Brian here as a special guest, and um, we've got a no number of other guest speakers. And one of our special guests um, who will be coming in and speaking after Brian is um, Mr. Philip Stewart, who's sitting here, and he's 100 years old, and he's a Spitfire pilot from World War II. So we've got two um, special veterans here. And uh, we'll also have uh, a number of speakers uh, coming up through the day. I'd like to uh, also thank Michelle Sim, who's also been a really good help with helping me set this up and bouncing ideas back and forth off her. And um, same with, uh, he's not here, but Bevan Jews is another one that I've been uh, bouncing ideas off and, and get, getting, uh, you know, sort of uh, ideas and... Um, uh, it's all, it's, it, it, these things, everyone says, oh, you do a great job, but it's always a team effort between other people as well as me. So, um, And also another uh, person I'd like to thank, who I don't think is here, is Ben Chapman from the museum here, who um, uh, yesterday 
very kindly stepped in to uh, be our driver to pick Brian up from the airport because Andy was going to be doing that, but because of his illness, uh, Ben stepped in, so that was really good. Um, I just want to thank all of you for coming along as well, and I'm just going to hand over now to Wing Commander Brett Marshall from the Air Force Museum of New Zealand, um, and he's just going to give you a little bit of a welcome. And I just want to acknowledge Dave as well for his passion and efforts in getting this um, forum together, which is fantastic. It's um, an absolute pleasure for us at the museum to uh, host you um, here today. Um, a couple of um, uh, things of awareness about the museum. We're getting number one hangar um, re-roofed at the moment. So you'll see a whole lot of scaffolding uh, in there when you do get the chance to wander through. So there's still access to the hangar to around the sides to see the exhibits, but if you see scaffolding and plastic, you, you now know, know why. A um, couple of other things. Um, the big C&E hall, which is the new wing to the museum, you'll see that a lot of it's all empty, and you may be saying, hey, why the big space? Uh, which sounds like the start of a joke. <laughs> Um, but when, during the earthquakes, for those of you that know, Christchurch obviously lost the convention centre and it lost the town hall. So there was an arrangement um, with our new extension that was finished in 2013 um, with VBase, who are the City Council's um, events uh, um, coordinators, if you like, um, that it was, uh, agreement was formed, so it was handed over to the City Council to be used for functions to keep stuff coming into Christchurch. So in the large space there, the week just gone, we had a Sinlay conference for two days, um, 600 people seated and then uh, a function in the evening. We've had uh, National Party conferences, we've had Hot Spring Spa Expos, Go Green Bike Expos, we had the Art Expo out there, we have school balls, etc. So it's uh, fantastic that we're able to have that space utilised to keep people coming into, into the city. Last year we had, um, in the Aircraft Hall, we had the New Zealand Tourism Awards and it's the first time they'd come back to New Zealand, uh, oh sorry, it's back to Christchurch um, since the earthquakes and they had that here at the museum which is fantastic and it went so well, they're having them again here this year, so, so that, that's great. Um, so that's why there's a big empty space. Um, the convention centre is due to finish in 2020, so we've now got plans underway for redesigning um, that whole space. So if you come back in two or three years' time, um, you'll see that totally redesigned with aircraft throughout, so the collection will, will go throughout that. Um, I'm just, when the guides are here, I'm going to be talking to them about um, guided uh, tours uh, for yourselves through the museum um, later on today. With Andy not speaking, um, it does allow a little bit extra time in the programme. Um, I think lunch uh, is due to start about 12.20 and you've got a space tour around about 1,400-ish, roughly. Um, so in there we're going to try and organise uh, some, some tours um, for you behind the scenes to have a look at some stuff. And um, as a special treat today, um, everything, if, if you go up to the shop and buy anything, you get 10% off everything um, in, the, in the shop if you do want to buy anything. Plus, there's more. Uh, we don't sell sets of knives, however. Um, with <laughs> See, the excitement's building. Um, these here, the, the keep cups, we call them, you know, the environmental thing. Um, and you don't get 10% off these, you get 20% off these, and if you go to the cafe, your coffee is also 20% off your coffees if you're using one of these. So not only do you get 20% off your off one of these if you buy it from the shop, you also get 20% off your coffee. So if you've been on the cusp of whether I should get one of these takeaway Brillman cups, it will now be a perfect opportunity. Um, but once again, it's our absolute pleasure to host you here. Um, yeah, thanks again, Dave, for your passion um, in organising these forums throughout the country. And uh, I hope you really enjoy today. Thank you. Well, we'll welcome our first speaker, and he's our special guest all the way down from Tauranga. Uh, flew in yesterday, and uh, he's um, well. There's you hardly need to really introduce him because he's so well known in aviation. Uh, he was a, a fighter pilot during World War Two, uh, flying Kitty Hawks and Corsairs, and uh, after the war, he was a renowned instructor at uh, Ardmore, um, and he was also an air traffic controller. And uh, he's an author and, uh, and, a, and a historian, and he's uh, an all-round great guy, and I'd like to welcome Brian Cox. Well, firstly, 
I'm a bit worried about tomorrow. I might fly one wing low because my right knee doesn't do. It's a bit needs a replacement. <laughs> um, secondly, <coughs> I haven't had much notice for this talk, and there's no, uh, Dave's left it to me to sort it out. Well, there's various things I could talk about, I guess, but I thought that I'd sort of more or less concentrate today on the life of a, <coughs> a teenager in the 40s. A wee bit different from a teenager in this era, as we all know. I'm quite interested and pleased to see, though, that there's one gentleman here that's older than I am. So, <laughs> <coughs> uh, so I look forward to talking to you a bit later. So, basically, I'll just base what I'm talking about on my actual log book here. Now, uh, until the 3rd of September 1939, I guess you know what I'm referring to, I was, uh, I was thinking in terms of going to sea and sailing ship or something like that. That's what I was interested in as a kid. But in 1940, I was in my third year at Hamilton Tech College in Hamilton, of course, and our English teacher, can you hear me at the back all right? Yeah. Seems to be very good acoustics in here, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic, actually. It is, yeah, I noticed that. Okay, well, my third year at Hamilton Tech last year, 1940, and our English teacher, who we called Gummy Martin, I'm not sure why, but obviously, probably reason why. <laughs> anyway, Gummy <coughs> had London Illustrated newspapers, and they were in full colour. They were, whereas most things in those days were black and white. But the London Illustrated News, or Illustrated London News, I'm not sure which way it's sp spoken, had all, it was completely surrounded in that room by coloured photos of thousands of, or hundreds of German aircraft that had been shot down in the Battle of Britain. It was 1940. And from then on, I think most of the kids like of my age decided they'd like to fly a Spitfire. So, <coughs> um, next move for me was in, on the 13th of September, 1941, entry to the Air Force was sort of expedited or by the inauguration of the Air Training Corps, which actually was also in Britain. Is that correct? Do you know? The Air Training Corps? I'm pretty sure it was, because I had a booklet, an RAF one, called... Quite strange, I had two books I was quite interested as a kid, at least at that stage, in aeronautics, and I bought two commode books, and one was called The Aircraft Structure, and from that I read about biplanes and all that sort of thing, and um, so I understood the mechanics of the, the biplanes. For example, it, it mentioned there how... Um, that, that a biplane has flying wires and landing wires and that if you flew upside down or inverted the landing wires became the flying wires and vice versa. So I had no compunction at all when I was flying a tiger moth or doing an inverted spin knowing that it wouldn't fall apart. <laughs> uh, the other book that we had and just about summed up my knowledge of, air, of theory of flight right into flying kitty hawks and corsairs was Flight Without Formula. That was an early commode book. I suppose some of you have seen that book or heard of it? Yeah. So that's about our total knowledge of aeronautics, really, when we got to flying the high-speed aircraft. Now... Um, yeah, okay. I've got my logbook marked here. Hopefully, just items to bring up. Uh, 
Um, I actually entered the Air Force at Omaka in uh, May 43. And by November, I was at Harewood flying Tiger Moths here, including 1443 once. And then, following that, oh, well, uh, in the, well, yeah, this is actually the page in my logbook that shows 1443, in which I did steep turns, forced landings, aerobatics, barrel roll, Roll off the top of a loop and a slow roll. That's what I did in 1443 that day. Um, my instructor asked me at the end of the course if, he, if I would like to become a flying instructor, to which I declined naturally. But I did get on this page an above average for flying the tiger. So that was first accomplishment, I guess you could say. Now, from there on we moved on to the Harvards at Woodburn, and uh, here we are, February, February. February the 14th I did my first flight at Woodburn in, ha in a Harvard, and did a one or two interesting things in the Harvard. One was that just be, in 1941 we had a visit at Cambridge where I was living at the time of a cousin I'd never met um, and he was, he was on his way to Singapore. It was in November 41, just a few weeks before Pearl Harbor and we didn't we didn't anyway realise it was going to be the Japanese war coming on and he visited, he was from Christchurch and he came up to Cambridge and met all our families in the Waikato and he had a kit bag with a tennis racket sticking out of it because his father actually had been in the New Zealand insurance company in Singapore for some years earlier and he was a top tennis player, in fact I'm reading myself recently, he was the top tennis player at, in, for Malaysia or something way back then. And here's his son, Tony, that's what I think of his name. And he came and visited us, heading for Singapore to play tennis and all that. But that was November, only five weeks, say, before December 7th. <laughs> and he was shot down on the 18th of January in a Brewster Buffalo. And he was flying in the New Zealand 488 squadron, whereas Jeff Fiskin, who most of you have heard of, and he shot down six planes flying the Brewster Buffaloes, but he was in an RAF squadron. Anyway, t Tony had the distinction of being one of the first pilots shot down in 488 squadron. In fact, that followed the death of my cousin Kevin Cox in Hamilton, who I knew well, and he was, had the dubious distinction of being the first pilot to be killed in 485 squadron in England on Spitfire. And that was a tragic flight where his brother, the old memory for names and things, Bernard, Bernard was in the Navy, the Royal Navy, and Bernard when they formed 485 Squadron and Kevin was flying the old Spit Mark 5s, I guess, and Bernard visited him <coughs> at the airfield, Lincolnshire somewhere, Lickenfield, I think it is, and Kevin took his brother up in a Miles Magister for half an hour for a flight, and then he hopped into the, his Spitfire, but it wasn't his normal one. He normally threw what was called the Hamilton Spitfire, like in those days each town in New Zealand more or less subscribed to a Spitfire. And he was normally flying the Hamilton Spitfire but it was in for maintenance or something and in a letter my auntie received from one of the officers there was some, some dubious situation regarding this plane that he flew and it spun in and killed him. And that flight in his logbook, and I've got a copy of that, 
lasted five minutes. <laughs> so he had this dubious distinction of being the first one killed in a Spitfire. That was 1941. Now, so, uh, anyway, I personally started flying Woodburn in uh, February 44, and um, it was about three or four months, I'll just see here. Uh, uh, June, March, April, May, June, okay. So we had four months on Harvards. In that time, I flew 61, wasn't it, Russell? 30 was the Harvards, or was 60 oh. of the P40s, I think. So. No, it was 31 P40s. Now, I'm pretty sure it was 61 Harvards. Anyway, so we, I did what, about four months there on the Harvard and uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. But, oh yes, Tony, the one that went to Singapore, that was 41, the Harvards were brand new. And he said <coughs> that they dived the Harvard to 300 MPH, which is, uh, looking at it now, it's about 70 miles an hour beyond its V&E, actually. However, I decided, seeing we wore parachutes and things those days, that I emulated him, and so one day I actually dived a half out to 300, and you could count all the ribs out on the wing. It was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so it proved that a half out could be dived to 300. Anyway, I didn't have much else to sort of comment on and flying the Harvard. I found them quite easy to fly and pleasant and all that sort of thing. But the next move was to the P-40s. Now this is an interesting one where we arrived at a Harkia on the 2nd of August, never having sat or touched a Kitty Hawk, and I flew one the next morning on the 3rd. <laughs> That's the amount of preparation to fly a P-40 with a V&E of 485. And to enter a loop, that's about all we knew about it is what's in here. That's the sum total, it's all in here. But I, I'd still remember that the loop speed on the P-40 was 300 for a loop and 330 for a roll off the top. So quite a jump from Harvard. But we only had one day's preparation. <laughs> Before flying the P-40, I flew in Harvard 1061. And Harvard 1061 now resides in Australia. On the second, I did a flight, my first flight in a, at Ohakia for number 480U was in a Harvard 1061. And my pilot was Bob Martin. Bob Martin was one of the first four pilots to shoot down Japanese Zero. Our P-40s on their first day in combat actually destroyed four Zeros. People criticised the P-40. Anyway, that happened and, and Bob was one of those four pilots. However, he checked me out in the Harvard 1061. Now, I saw 1061 going through Here we are. Yeah. I saw 1061 go through Ardmore in 1973, I think it was, on its way to Australia. Kelvin Stark ferried it over there. The, the, the Aussies, as you probably all know, didn't have Harvards. They had Wiraways they built, more or less a copy of a Harvard, but not exactly. Different motor, I think. Anyway, uh, about a dozen of our Harvards have gone over to Aussie. And between 2007 and 2010, my wife and I lived over in Australia for four years. And in 2009, I think it was, I was wondering where Harvard 1061 was. So I went on Google and I just typed in Harvard NZ 1061. And it came up with the owner's name and his location in New South Wales. And I phoned him up. 
and he said he was going to Timora in a few weeks' time, and if I went there, I could go for a flight in it. Now, there's 1061 in Australia there. These are all in Australia, these ones. And so that is actually the Harvard that I flew to, to be checked out to fly a P-40. Now, I think quite an interesting observation is that the amount of flight time we had in the logbook, which was very minimal, for example, before flying a P-40, pilot 100 by day, 105 hours, that's it, and at night 8.35, so it was 113 hours, pilot in command, to fly a plane that could dive to 485 mph <laughs> and do loops at 300. Minimal time, very much so. People, you know, think, and a lot of the public seem to think that in the Air Force you'd always fly the same plane. Well, hardly ever did you say to fly the same registration twice in a row. Very seldom. <laughs> in fact, on the 2nd of August, I did a flight with Bob Little, and then I did a solo one, sector reco, that means sector reconnaissance, in other words, looking around at the territory, the terrain around the Harkia so I don't get lost. The next morning, I did another sector reco, and that afternoon, I flew two P-40s. So it was pretty minimal time in, in the logbook to fly such an aircraft. And then... Uh, that was the third, and on the fourth I flew two more P-40s, and the fifth flew two more P-40s, and I didn't... We were not very aware of the models of P-40, they were just numbers written up on the crew room or whatever, the flight room, and you went out and flew it. No idea really what, whether an M or N or K. It wasn't until years after the war that I learnt about the difference between the different models. <laughs> except that uh, one model P-40, some of you probably know more about this than I do, where I hopped into it and there was no pitch lever. <laughs> it had an automatic, completely automatic prop mechanism. But I have read that they were not very popular in air combat, that model. And for those sort of interested, I don't know why. I think there's a good reason. The tachometer, when you up, all you had was a throttle. And the tachometer sort of moved in jumps. It didn't come nice and smooth. There's an electrical reason for that, apparently. So, uh, according to... I've got recorded here now that the first one I flew was an M, and the next one was an N, and the next was N, and the next an M, and the next K. So I flew M's, N's, and K's in the first five flights, and one, two, three, four, five, six flights. I didn't fly the same one twice. They were each one of the different registrations. So that was my introduction to the P-40. I could talk quite a bit about flying P-40s, but I'll probably run out of time. How much do I have, um, Dave? I mean, is it half an hour, is it? Yeah, you've still got another ten minutes. OK, well, I better keep moving on. Um, well, I, may, I created two records, possibly never experienced by anyone else, of doing having a P-40 stall after three minutes. <laughs> I remember I taxied out at a Harker, they'd give you, or you'd call on radio for taxi, and then you watch the tower for a green light. And I was only halfway through my checks, and the green light came, and he started to pump flashing on and off because he had something coming in there, presumably, so I, I just assumed that he was in a hurry to get me airborne. So I really only barely did the checks, and they got on and took off. And when I got airborne in the P-40 after Harvard, I was sort of semi-mesmerised by this long nose out front. <laughs> They've got a carburetor air intake that sits at the top of the engine. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The odd seagull went in there occasionally. 
Anyway, so I was climbing out, probably at about 2,000 feet a minute, and um, not even looking inside the cockpit, wasn't even looking at the snows. And then well, I turned towards Palmerston on my right, so I just rolled into a turn. The next minute, the horizon went <laughs> like this, stalled. <laughs> but in the Harvard, we absolutely thrashed them with snap rolls. Like doing instrument flying, for example, with two students in the Harvard, <coughs> some, well, did it with either an instructor or another student, a safety pilot, and we used to do cage the gyros. In the wartime aircraft, you had to gauge the two gyros, the, the artificial horizon and the DI, direction indicator. You had to cage those, and with them caged, we could have the student doing loops on basic panel just using the turn needle and using that and you could do a loop. Well, as a safety pilot, at the top of that loop, it'd slam the stick back and kick full rudder and cartwheel it and say, you have control. <laughs> and, and that was how we taught unusual attitudes by snap rolling a Harvard inverse. Anyway. P-40s. Oh, the other one that possibly no one's beaten me at was the fact that just prior to being flying the P-40, we'd, uh, we got, had our wings at Woodburn and I was an NCO, flight sergeant, or sergeant then, and we had a whole month at Levin. And at Levin, every morning at 9 o'clock parade, one of the boys that had been there and went to Harkey would come over and do screeching dives over the parade ground. So I decided to do this on my second or third flight in a Kitty Hawk and climbed out of a hack here and got to 13,000 feet over Levin and I just pulled the nose up inverted and do a vertical dive on the parade ground. I still remember seeing the ASI going past 450. But when I... I, I didn't know the mathematics then of the fact that at 5,000 feet you're one mile high and if you're doing 400 and, 420, say, that's seven mile a minute. And from being vertical that way to that way, you had a seventh of a minute. I never, I wasn't aware of that sort of, but I soon learned because the ground came up. Well, on the second of these flights, I hauled back so, so um, energetically that I sort of woke up heading that way. <laughs> but a funny thing happened where I glanced at the, um, not the cylinder head temp, the coolant temp. Of course there we had cylinder head temp, but the Kitty Hawk was a coolant temp, temperature gauge, and the thing was reading zero. Well, that's funny. I must have dived so fast that I've overcooled it. So I put it into a steep climb, everything to warm an engine. I leaned the mixture and climbed at a slow speed but a high rate of climb. And I got back to about 13,000 feet quickly, and the temperature gauge was still on zero. That's funny. So I immediately thought I'd better get back to a Harkia. So I put the nose down and I was whistled over the top of a Harkia doing about 300, and I'd pull the nose up and, I'd, and I went back and forth trying to slow the thing down. <laughs> and then I couldn't get the tower on the radio, so it struck me it must be electrical. And there was a plastic cover on the instrument panel that I'd never even looked at before. It was actually circuit breakers. And in my pull-out, I threw all the circuit breakers off. <laughs> and I, I've read plenty of books about flying P-40s and I've never heard of anyone else that's ever thrown the circuit breakers off. <laughs> uh, it's hard to understand, though, how Curtis would build an aeroplane where, by pulling a tight manoeuvre, he could throw the switches off. <laughs> well, I did anyway. <laughs> anyway, that's my memory of flying P-40s. Let's see what the next is. Uh, on my 20th birthday, as most of you know, if you've read my books, we lost eight aircraft, and this is the page that covers that. Black Monday, they call it. Uh, cutting it very briefly, of course, we had the chap shot down in the morning a Rabao swimming and <coughs> a, vent, 
American Catalina, I actually heard the American black cat pilot call saying, requesting landing and pick up the, the downed pilot. And I was flying with Paul Green, my CO, and um, he said negative because it would have been suicidal for the black cat, about a kilometre off, surrounded by 100,000 Japanese and guns and things. And so they sent a Ventura bomber over, got the natives to make bamboo rafts to flow. He couldn't even use his life raft because it was a bright colour. And only surrounded by 100,000. <laughs> and uh, so the Ventura came in and Paul Green, who I was flying with, he led it around the volcano and I followed it and we dropped these bamboo rafts to Frank Keith swimming in the harbour. But then to, to stop us getting shot down, they sent 12 more Corsairs from with the Ventura. They all arrived on the scene and they strafed the waterfront while we did the raft drop. The third pilot and my three of us, he went up to 10,000 feet for a radio link with Green Island, Grev Randall is name, but, and he, when we returned, we flew into this tropical front on the way home and without elaborating, only eight of us landed out of 15. And I was the youngest and the least experienced of all the pilots, but I survived it. Grev Randall, who was flying on the other side of Paul Green and my three, he was a pilot who had been a flying instructor and we all knew that his pilot grading was exceptional, not above average, but exceptional. Well, he managed to hold formation. I lost formation because to avoid a collision in the dark. And, uh, and yet he managed to hold formation with Paul Green, the CO, till we got back to Green Island, and then he crashed on the far side of the lagoon, so it was pretty tragic. Anyway, that was... Um, Black Monday, they call it now. Now, what's the next one I've got marked here? Be something. After my first tour, what, uh, we used to do a tour of three months from Ardmore, and the first tour we'd go to either Esprit du Santo, New Hebrides, or Henderson Field on Guadalcanal and do a month for, to acclimatise new pilots and do squadron training and then we'd do two months at a forward base and then come back to New Zealand. That's what the tour consisted of, three months away. And I did that three times. My first one was Green Island for two months and then home. And the next one was to Bougainville where we had four squadrons of Corsairs based at Bougainville when we were doing bombing there for the Australian Army. Uh, close support bombing where we dropped bombs with a stick about three feet in front of the bomb with the detonator so as, so as not to make massive holes in the ground but to clear the jungle because the Australian soldiers thought they could only see a few metres ahead in the jungle and so our bombing there was to, well they call them daisy cutters, and it was to clear the jungle so that the troops could see where they were going. Although we probably killed a number of Japanese at the same time. <laughs> a thousand pound bomb. We'd, that was only shallow diving from about a 40 degree dive and we'd release at 1500 feet and pull out by a thousand. But you'd, you'd feel a thousand pound bomb going off in the plane of the one before you. <laughs> You can see the big rings going in and out and all that. Uh, this is a page showing entries for close support bombing. And on there it says what type of bomb and how, what weight, 1,000 pounds, 650 pounds, etc., etc., and the target. And here, description of what we did or the results of that raid, of that flight. I actually personally dropped 39 of them. Through intelligence they seemed to know exactly what Japanese units were where. It was quite clever but they did somehow find out and they would actually in the briefing more or less mention what the Japanese targets were. Um, time is it?
<laughs> I had one incident on the Corsair, and that happened on Bougainville, where on the, here we go, draft engine Five three nine four. That's it. There. I was only carrying a three three twenty five pound depth charger. See, we had bombs and depth charges, and the depth charge didn't have much metal, but a lot of explosive, and that's what they wanted to clear the jungle. Well, on that flight, I had a three twenty five pound depth charge, but I <coughs> straight on takeoff, and of course there was forty inches of boost on takeoff. Had only two thirds power, and once we got airborne, though, if you're near the back of a formation, you push it through to about 50 inches, and at 50 inches, about about 250 gallons an hour fuel flow went through. <laughs> but anyway, so and I had about 50 inches on, and, and, and suddenly no noise at all, and especially if you're somewhere near the back. Each plane was a bit below the slipstreams of the ones in front, and I was down about four or five hundred feet only with a dead engine and a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> now, I. What happened was probably within 15 or 20 seconds that engine restarted, but it didn't just start, it went bang! <laughs> It's exploded. As I say, when you've got the throttle forward like that, the fuel's going through at about four gallons a minute. <laughs> and it just exploded into life. And I just turned towards the coast, thinking I'll be ditching this, hopefully. And all the gauges worked beautifully, it was correctly, and the plane was running smooth. So I did probably the wrong thing, but I rejoined the formation and went and bombed and strafed and came home and ran up the engine perfectly good, told the engineers perfectly good, they couldn't find a problem. They put it back on the line and luckily the next pilot to flirt that next morning was in my tent, Cliff Brady, and he had the same stoppage and it went stopped and then started again, so he just dumped his bomb and landed again quickly. Uh, the mechanics thought it must be fuel, so they changed the carburetor and two days later, this is all very, what's the word, but anyway, the fact that it was, the, it happened the third time and the date was the 13th, that's what it was, <laughs> yeah. And Graham Harry from Morrinsville, with him there, it stopped, never started and he was killed, so I was a bit lucky there. And 2011, a chap was doing a documentary up in Bougainville and he went out and he'd read my book and he went got the natives and he photographed this plane still lying there, 5394. Anyway, so that was my second tour. Jackano Bay was my third tour, that's in New Britain, just south of Rabaul. And because we were closest to Rabaul than any other squadron, we were just south of them on all, everything from Green Island was moved to Jackano Bay while I was at Bougainville. And so we flew the same planes again that we'd flown at Green Island, uh, at Jackano Bay, and we, over, we, we sort of supervised the surrender, or involved in that leaflet, with escort Venturas dropping leaflets and all that, and I personally escorted a Kate torpedo bomber uh, uh, from, from Rabaul down to our base at Jackano Bay, and I flew in tight formation because I was leading a section by then, and um, we had to be over the airfield at nine in the morning, and I did, and the Japanese pilot took off. Now, we had three zeros in a diner already come down to Jackano Bay, but this was a Kate torpedo bomber from Pearl Harbor sort of thing. And the pilot flew west instead of south, so I had to pull in beside him, and I was very conscious of kamikaze pilots. <laughs> But I had, to put, I had to pull in behind his right wing and give him hand signals. But I was all ready to hit the stick over if he sort of made some untimely move towards me, but he didn't. So anyway, but that aircraft now is in the <coughs> Pacific Aviation Museum in Pearl Harbor being reconstructed.
Hmm. And I've had the CEO of that museum come and visit me in Tauranga because that was the last kite ever to fly and I flew with it <laughs> and steering with hand signals. And then following that, um, <coughs> I actually was posted into 14 Squadron because I'd been in 16 Squadron. I was posted in the 14 Squadron and spent 12 months in Japan, as most of you know, probably. And we were based at Hiroshima, at least 20 miles from Hiroshima for a whole year. That was quite an interesting year. Um, but we nearly lost the entire squadron in Dakota on the way home to New Zealand. Our Dakota pilots did the longest flights in the world, I think, 6,000 miles from Fenerpai to Japan, 6,000 back again, one pilot, one engineer and one navigator. Now, we were halfway between Manila and Moritai Island, that's in the Dutch East Indies, north of Darwin, when all of a sudden there was a screech and the plane went like that, and the pilot had been back sitting on a crate of beer bottles talking to us. <laughs> they used to cut... The Australian Air Force had bases at Moritai Island and they did their maintenance, so our boys would take half a dozen crates of beer down to them. And Doug Holloway, the pilot... Now, the strange thing was Doug Holloway was a warrant officer, non-commissioned, flying at Dakota, full of... Apart from myself, I was the only non-commissioned pilot. All the other pilots were commissioned. It just happened that none of the NCOs wanted to go to Japan without commissions, and two of me, Keith Wakeman, two of us, Keith Wakeman from Christchurch and myself, but only two agreed to go as NCOs, but we became warrant officers, so we got actually more pay than a pilot officer. Mm. <laughs> However, to finish this off, because Doug Cross got an Air Force Cross, Doug Holloway, an Air Force Cross for this episode, where this thing screeched and and we were flying into the top of big QNIMs and stuff, and, and we actually flew into a tropical front with heavy rain on the roof. I've never... What happened was the, an oil pipeline broke in the prop mechanism and it went stuck in the fully fine pitch on the port motor. And so it wouldn't hold height, partly because of what the beer we were carrying and a few other things. <laughs> Uh, he used a minimum descent speed, because Doug told me afterwards, of 90 knots. And that, holding it, that had the minimum descent. Now, Doug Holloway, warrant officer only, and he always flew at 11,000 feet, and other pilots flew at 10,000. Now, when we got to Moritai, after descending in a tropical front in the dark, we were less than a thousand feet, and if it had been at 10,000 feet, we'd have been in the sea. So I was pretty lucky. <laughs> now, to, okay, to finish that off though, about five years later, Doug Holloway was burnt to death in a tiger moth near Partia, top dressing. Hmm. Well, I, I could carry on, but anyway, that's about my time limit, I guess. So. Uh, I'll just quickly show you the three things. Well, that's 61, the one that I flew, and I went to Timor and did some aerobatics in it in 2010, so... <laughs> For those that don't know, what is that aircraft? <laughs> now, the interesting thing is, in my logbook here, that's 5648, and I have flown, that's in the logbook, 47 and 49, the one each side. This one didn't go to Japan because in the Aviation Historical Society's publication I've got of every registration in the ever on the Air Force, there's an asterisk beside this one's number. And there was some query about its manufacturer's number or some minor thing, but it didn't go to Japan. And that's the one that flies now. <laughs> so that's 48, and I've flown 47 and 49. In total, in two and a half years, I flew 113 different courses. <laughs> anyway, that's about as much as I've got time to mention, I guess, or say. I hope that's been of interest to you.
quickly here. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.